discouraged because I got an email this week saying that there's going to be prayer at the school on Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock over the school district, and it'll be in front of the middle school building. And so I'm not exactly sure where that is, but my wife's going to show me. Um, I think that's a great place to pray for the kiddos, number one, because it's probably in the middle of the whole school district, but also because middle school for me was the beginning of the worst years of my school career. Middle school's tough, you know, so I love you, Judah. <laughs> Poor guy. He's got it rough. So many people that love on him. So many curls. All that hair. You know what? I don't feel bad for him at all. <laughs> I'm a little jealous. All right. So there's a special opportunity on Tuesday for prayer over the school district and over the kiddos, and there's going to be a bunch of people gathering. I'm actually going to go into work two hours late so I can go. That's how important it is to me. Um, my boss has graciously given me time off to do that. Uh, number two, on Saturday night, I want you to invite anybody that you know that knows Jesus or might be on the fence. There's going to be a really great guy. His name is Daniel Messiah. He's a Christian who converted to Christianity while he lived in Egypt. He suffered persecution for that, was sent to jail. His family did not try to help him. They said, why don't you just reject your faith and come back to our good side. Uh, they're Muslims. His, name, his given name is actually Muhammad. So when he became a believer, he wanted his name to reflect Christ. So he took the name Daniel Messiah. So you can see that. Um, but anyway, that'll be Saturday night. At 6.30 p.m., I know it's 6.30 on Saturday and 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, but maybe twice in a week we can go to church and be okay, you know? We go to work five days a week, why not? Some of us more. Anyway, he uh, wrote a book called Traitor, and it's an excellent book. If anybody wants to borrow my copy, you are welcome to do it, but I want it back. Um, but anyway, uh, it's basically him uh, knowing Allah searching out him for years, praying, trying to be a, a good Muslim. And uh, then he got invited to church one day, and he found out that Christians weren't really what they were being told. And so he'll share his testimony. I'm going to encourage him to share his testimony on uh, Saturday night at 6.30. So bring a friend, come to that, invite people from other churches. We're not trying to steal people's sheep. We're just trying to get as many people to hear his message as possible and hear how God's working in the Muslim world um, and saving Muslims by visions and dreams and like he's interacting with those cultures. Yeah. So I think that's it. So 7 a.m. Tuesday and 6.30 p.m. on Saturday. So come one, come all. That said, we're going to be turning to the letter that Paul wrote to Titus this morning. We're, we're turning the page. We finished our letters to Timothy. Uh, many that teach these books actually teach Titus in the midst of the pastoral epistles. These are letters that are written from Paul to younger pastors, trying to equip them and encourage them in their calling. But also these were men that Paul knew personally and wanted to uh, inspire them before he expired. He knew that his life would not last forever, so he trained up other pastors. Um, so Titus is typically taught many times out of the order of the books in the New Testament because 2 Timothy was literally the last letter that we have in our Bible 
that Paul wrote. It was his deathbed letter to those that he loved, and he wrote to Timothy. So Titus is sometimes taught before that. So if you kind of back up and forget that, you know, he wrote his last letter, and we, if you think chronologically like I do, we're going to take a step back from his deathbed. We're going to go back to the days where Paul was actually in, in the, the church at Ephesus, and he wrote several letters during his time there, and he spent about, uh, well, he spent 18 months in Corinth, and I cannot remember how much time he spent in Ephesus, um, but being a very influential area, he spent much time there, and while he was there, many believe he wrote to Titus. So, in our next slide, I'm going to just talk a little bit about uh, the background. Titus, uh, he's going to write in this first chapter, is another son in the faith, like Timothy, another young man that Paul uh, called his son in the faith. It was likely written from Ephesus, and uh, Titus is actually located on the island of Crete, and it's out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So a lot of people might say, hey, Titus has got it pretty good. You know, for us, we'd like to be called to Hawaii, right? It's got to be easier there because everybody's there on vacation, and of course, you don't think about the fact that recently we've had volcanoes erupting in, in Hawaii, so it may not be as glamorous as you think. You're on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and all of a sudden your island's being overtaken with hot lava. Um, so that said, he's on an island in Crete. And so uh, Titus is not like Timothy, who we just studied the last two letters, where Timothy had this problem with being timid. He was kind of more like I would identify as being someone who's not prone to want to approach people and confront them about things, but somebody that's more likely to kind of stay back and let things you know, roll out as they do. Um, but, but Titus was not known, and you can even imagine by his name, Titus. It just sounds like a, like a manly name. You know? I have a friend, his, na- his son, he named Titan. I think of you know, like a, a Titan. You know, even if you don't know football and you're thinking of the Tennessee Titans, you're thinking of maybe you're younger and you're thinking of Teen Titans, the, 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 the cartoon. And he's like a superhero, you know. So, uh, but anyway, that's my point is he's got kind of a manly name and he is a manly man. He's, he's a young man, but he's also pretty zealous. But the reason that Paul left him in Crete, we can find in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So he he wants Titus to be a man who goes forth and sets things in order and appoints leaders. So that's why he's writing to Titus to say, hey, here's why I left you here. Here's your purpose for being there in Crete. So verse one. In verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's chosen, or in some of your translations, it might say, of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested or revealed his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So verse 1 through 4, Paul does his common greeting. And I've said this over and over again. He writes it at the beginning, who it's from, because if it's a long letter, you would have to read the whole thing, not know who's writing to you, and then read the sincerely, Paul the Apostle. But in this case, he says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He calls himself a slave of God. But not just any type of slave, not not a slave who was stolen from his country and forced to serve, but a bondservant is actually known as someone who would choose to serve his master because he likes his master. Choose to serve his master because he has it better as a bond slave than he ever did when he was on his own. And so Paul sees himself as not only a slave of God, but also a sent one of Jesus Christ. Remember with me of when Jesus was speaking to his, his um, disciples, he said, I no longer call you slaves or servants, but now I call you my friends. Because slaves don't know the intentions that their masters have. They only know that they have things to do. But I send you out as my friends because I'm revealing to you the keys to the kingdom. And so we see here Paul sees himself and is called by God as a slave of God, he recognizes the lordship of Jesus. Many times we look at him and we say, wow, Jesus loves us. He saved us. Yes, he did, and he does, but he's also Lord. He's our master. So we don't approach him just like our homeboy or maybe somebody that we're related to that we know all too well. We approach him as our king. We approach him as our Lord, our master, someone who is in charge now. And so if he is in charge, Paul says, I am also an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's a word that means a sent one, somebody, a messenger who is sent with a message. He says, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. I've been sent by Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's chosen people, but also because I've acknowledged the truth which accords with godliness. The truth is that we are all sinners and we are all desperately wicked without a savior. So if that is what your perspective is in life, then you're not surprised when something nasty comes out of your mouth or when you have an improper attitude or when you sin. You're not surprised by that because the Bible tells you over and over again, you are a sinner. And because of that, you need Jesus to make you different. You need Jesus to change you and make you new. And that doesn't change until we're in heaven, by the way. We will always have this sinful, fleshly nature that is battling against the spiritual nature of God, Christ in us, Emmanuel, the Holy Spirit. And there's this war. And if you read Romans chapter 7, what it says there is, Paul the apostle, who's writing this letter, writes, the things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do, and the things that I I don't want to do, I do. And the things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. Who can save me from this body of sin and death? And then he goes on in Romans chapter 8 to turn the corner and say, I thank God through Jesus Christ who makes me new day by day. I need the power of the Spirit dwelling in me to make me any different. So Paul acknowledges the fact that with 
accords with godliness, the acknowledgement of the truth that I'm a sinner and that Jesus is good and he saved me. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So in verse 2, he says, I'm living in the hope of eternal life, that this life isn't all that God has offered me, but my hope is not here, it's in heaven. And so in, in light of that, I live my life differently. So he says, it's been promised to me by God, and notice this, there's a parenthetical statement in commas in my translation that says, God, who cannot lie. Did you know that God cannot lie? I don't know anybody who cannot lie except God. As a matter of fact, as I was considering my own life before Christ this morning, I used to be a big fat liar. I would lie about things you didn't need to lie about, and I would steal. So in, in light of that, he says, God who cannot lie. Well, we find out later why he says this in his greeting. It's important for Titus to be reminded of this because it says there, in the end of this chapter, in verse 12, one of them, Paul's going to talk about, a prophet of their own, a prophet, someone who speaks into the culture of the Cretans. He says, Cretans are always liars. They're like evil beasts or animals, and they're lazy gluttons. He says, they're, they're always liars. That's what they were known for. Think about the towns that we have around us. There are things that we're known for based on what town we're from sometimes. Or think about your family name. Maybe you got a family name where people hear that name and they go, oh, you're one of them, huh? You know, I don't know what those names are around here. I've heard a couple, but I'm not going to say any because, you know, you start name dropping and people get a little offended. But we all know the names that we've heard and we hear that name and it makes us go, red flag, don't want to do business with them, you know? Well, in Paul, Paul's writing to Titus, who is in, in an island, you can imagine, you know, we think about our kind of, our, our community's kind of closed off. If you're not from here, people know that. They treat you differently. Um, and, and so we're kind of our own deal. And we're like that in our families sometimes. We kind of, you know, we only associate with certain people because of our name or because of the family we grew up in. But imagine an island. There's not people driving through this place. Everyone knows literally everyone. So on island life, what was known about the Cretans is that they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Paul starts by saying to Titus, this hope of eternal life that people might say is a lie and we don't need to hope in it, guess what? God is the one that promised it, and God can't lie. It's not that he won't lie. It's that he cannot. It's not part of his character. So he says, God who cannot lie promised this before time began, but has in due time manifested or revealed his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul knows his calling. He knows that he's called as a proclaimer of truth, and it's according to the commandment of his commanding officer, who is God our Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm writing to you, Titus, who is a true son in our common faith. And I think it's interesting that he uses that phrase. He says to Titus, a true son in the faith, not an illegitimate son. A true son is one that's your own flesh and blood, one that looks like you, one that acts like you. If people see a picture of me and my dad together, they go, wow. 
look at that guy. He's already, you know, and there's all kinds of negative things because of that. I got the, you know, the, the bald spot in the back that's developing. I've got the, the hair that's been up to here since I was in first grade, you know. But I've also got the northern accent because we're from Illinois, northern Illinois on top of that. Um, but we're the same height. I used to think, man, I'm the tallest mingi that's existed, but I think at one point my dad was my height, but then having kids for some reason shrinks you, <laughs> like I'm already losing height, you know, but, but if you look at us, I'm a true son of Al, and if you look at me, and people used to call me all the time, little Al, you know, Judah and Lucy look like us, they're true sons and daughters. So, but what does that look like when Paul, I, I don't think he's saying that Titus looked like him. He called Timothy a true son. Does everybody look the same in the old world? Is that what's going on? No, he says, he says a true son in the what? The faith. So it seems like Timothy and Titus had faith that looked like Paul's. And that makes sense, right? Because you become like who you spend your time with. And so Paul says to Titus, you are a true son in the faith. Genetically, we can see that, but in the faith, we have to watch someone longer to see these things take place. But what Paul says is, your faith reflects mine. Your character reflects mine. You have a desire to see people saved like I do. The way that you serve people looks like the way that I serve people. And so he says, Paul says to Titus, I've been called to proclaim the truth through preaching. Go and do likewise. That's what he's saying to him. He's charging him to go and preach God's word. Don't neglect it. He just wrote that to Timothy. Do not neglect the constant feeding of the sheep of God. And if you do, it will cause harm. But he says, don't neglect it. So verse 5, he goes on and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick to anger, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but instead hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who are contradicting the truth. So he says in verse 5, I want you to set in order things that are lacking. So in the next slide I have for you there that, that Paul's going to tell him to set things in order, and really that's a medical term. Anybody in here ever had a broken bone? or a bent bone that was born kind of wrong, or a, a piece of your body that has to be straightened. Maybe you haven't had a broken bone. Maybe you've had teeth that needed straightened. We've got orthodontists that put those things in there, and then they torture your children, and you pay them thousands of dollars to make their teeth look better, and then eventually they, they, they're set in place, right? And so um, he says, set in order the things that are lacking, he means establish structure in the church there. Any new church, when it begins, doesn't have a whole lot of structure. And as it grows, it needs structure to be added 
so that it can be healthy and so that it can be strong and so that it can be established, just like a building. So we would think of a cast on a broken bone that's been set in place or a brace, something that, that holds you together. If you've ever seen Forrest Gump, he, he's born with this problem with his legs and they, they put braces on his legs. That's in order to make him walk correctly. And so he says, set things in place. But then from verse 6 through 9, he, he basically tells him, I want you to find not just people to be in leadership. You can find tons of people that want to be in power. We've had many people over the years that have come in, and because we didn't give them a role, a practical role to do something that's up in front, they were out. They wanted to be in a position where they could make things happen and, and people would know them. And, and I'm sorry that they've left, but at the same time, we don't need leaders who come in and just want to make themselves known. We want people that want to do the will of God, whether they're seen or not. And many times we put people in place, not because they make a big splash, but because they're already doing the work that that position calls for. Anybody that we ever put in a position of leadership in this church will be due to the fact that they were already leading without the title. And so he talks about their qualifications. And these are so important because they're qualifications that he's already listed in Timothy. And these are qualifications that reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 6 through 9, he lists out the qualifications. And I don't know about you, but as I read them, over the course of the last week, but also today, I look at this list and it is an impossible list for anybody to qualify for this work. But the point is, is that Jesus is the only one that can qualify anybody. You know, when my pastor asked me to be a deacon at Parkland Chapel in Farmington, he said, I want you men to pray over this list and I want you to come to me afterwards and let me know, number one, if you think you're qualified, and number two, if you're willing to stick your head out of the trench and take some pot shots. Because as leaders, when you step up, um, you actually put a big old target on your head. So he at least warned us, right? Um, but what happened was, as I prayed over this list, I was younger than most of the guys. I, I was actually the youngest in the whole group. But some of the older guys that had more realistic view of themselves, I was sitting there going, well, I can't tell them that I don't think I'm qualified based on this list. I'm just going to kind of hang back and listen to what they say. And as we all sat there together and he went one by one to the different people, every one of those guys said, I'm not qualified. I, I don't measure up to this standard. And he said, okay, that's what qualifies you, recognizing you, that you're not qualified. And so what happens here is he lists this out, and it's this, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today because we already studied it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but he says, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having children that are not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And he actually said in 1 Timothy 3, if a man can't rule over his own household well, how can he be a leader in the church of God? That the way that he leads his house actually shows that he's able to be a steward over little so God can make him faithful over much. And then he goes on to say, a bishop, which we think of a, we don't think of the word bishop in church that seems like, you know, kind of high churchy, you know, a very formal position, but the idea of a bishop is an under-shepherd, a leader in the church of God that really is in submission to Jesus, and then as a result of that is submitted to Jesus in leading the church that he's placed in. 
and uh, that he may be blameless. And the idea is that he's not that he's never done anything wrong, but that he has a lifestyle that is not one that constantly is taking accusations, uh, accusations that can't stick, if anything. I've been blamed of things. And if the accusations stick, the charges stick, then it shows that maybe I don't have the character that I need to have as a leader in the church. But these are talking about people that if they are blamed, nobody believes it, if you know what I'm saying. There are many people that if someone said they did this, the whole crowd, the whole valley would say, yep, I I believe that. I've seen him do that. I was there the last time he did it, you know, whatever it might be. But then he goes on to say, a bishop must be blameless a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given over to the control of wine is the idea. You know, when he says, uh, do not be drunk with wine in Ephesians chapter 5, he's saying, do not be controlled by that substance. Do not give your will over to anything that would rule you. And when you are drunk with any alcohol or when you're high on drugs, you are letting that chemical or that substance, you're, you're saying, hey, you take control because I'm tired of it. And when you do that, it controls you. And he says, these that are to be in leadership in church are not to be given over to the control of any substance or to be given over to the control of violence or to be given over to the control of uh, money, to have a love for money that causes them to sin. But instead, there are to be those who are hospitable, somebody that's likely to invite people over to their house and, and to serve them. A lover of what is good, someone who is sober-minded, just, and holy, set apart for God's use, someone who has self-control. Holding fast or anchoring themselves to the faithful word as, as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound teaching, or we talked last week about sound doctrine, We talked about that as being hygienic or healthy diet of the Word of God, that by their sound teaching, they can exhort and convict those who contradict. And so anybody that's going to be an elder in the church of God needs to be somebody that can actually take the Word of God in themselves, apply it to their lives, and then take it in and be able to give counsel to others to have a teaching ministry of some sort. And so... He, he uses all of this to explain that they need to set in order what's not going on there. And we as leaders are called to watch, to be watchful, and to look for others who have these gifts, who have been gifted by God, and, and also to pray for wisdom. And after a time, what happens in, in our church, the way that we do things leadership-wise, is that I'm a, like a, a talent scout. I don't tell people what to do. I try to see what you guys are good at, and maybe in the cases where I get an opportunity to say, hey, have you considered? I can't make anybody do anything. But at the very least, I can watch your lives and hear what your struggles are, and I can pray for you. And if the Lord gives me wisdom to say, hey, you might be good at this, and then to give you a shot at it. And so if I ever ask you to do something that seems like out of your comfort zone, know that it's not something that I just need done. I'm asking you because I see that in you and I'm looking for you to have an opportunity to use your gifts in the body of Christ. I'm sure you're using them already. But the idea is to be able to say, hey, you know, you're really good at hospitality. Have you considered, you know, high-fiving people on the way in the door? You know, or you're really sensitive to other people's needs. Have you considered praying for people, you know, during service, just picking one person a week and saying, hey, 
I notice that you're struggling in this. Can I pray, can I pray with you? And, and those are ways that we use the gifts that God's given us to bless one another and to build one another up. It doesn't have to be on a stool. And it doesn't have to be leading worship. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the things that you think are church-type things. And so, uh, but in the context of eldership, as leaders, we call people and, and we talk to them. We've watched their lives long enough. And we say, hey, we've noticed this characteristic in you. We, we've watched your life. We're praying for you. Um, and we, uh, we know others that have also seen these qualities in you. We'd like to ask you to be a part of leadership. And at that point, we ask you to pray about it. And after a time, when you've been doing the leadership stuff, we will lay hands on you and make you an official elder or deacon. That's how we do it. It's not necessarily the most formal process, but we feel like it's a biblical process. And so um, he's told them to preach the word, establish leadership, and next he's going to tell them to uh, silence those who are teaching falsely. So in verse 10, he continues, he says, there are many who are insubordinate. In other words, they are unwilling to submit to authority. They are idle talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision. He's talking about the Jewish Christians whose mouths must be stopped. In other words, uh, their pie holes must be shut. And he says this, that's my translation, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, Paul writes. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and their conscience are defiled. Look at this. This sums it all up, these false teachers. They profess to know God but in their works, they deny him. They are abominable, disobedient, and look at this, disqualified for every good work. So this is the group that hopefully doesn't describe you. This is the group that, that has ulterior motives, and there are not motives that are submitted to the will of God. But he says they are idle talkers and deceivers. So I have up there for you on the slide, what are they like? Number one, they're unwilling to submit to authority. If you meet a Christian that is unwilling to submit to anyone's authority, I would subject to you they probably have a problem submitting to the authority of a heavenly father. They do. Jesus is not necessarily the Lord of their life. Um, they are idle talkers. And that word there in the Greek actually means seed pickers. They pick up scraps of knowledge and they drop it wherever they are along the way. If you've ever had a bird feeder next to your house, you've had seed pickers. They come in, they get the seeds, they drop most of them, and then you get these, all these weird plants that grow out of your yard. Um, but then they, they chew on it, and, and they get a little bit, and then they drop the rest. And there are many people who proclaim to be believers who pick up little pieces of knowledge, and then they just drop them on people. But the problem is, is that with the word of God, you have to take all of it or none of it. I heard somebody last week, uh, Brock Ashley was teaching in Parkland Chapel. He said that the Bible is not a salad bar. Now, if you eat a salad bar like I do, 
you go in there and you get a little bit of salad and a whole bunch of bacon bits, cheese, croutons. I ain't eating no ranch. That's weird. I don't like ranch. You can hate on me if you want, but I think it's gravy for salad. But um, you, you take a salad bar and we all pick out the pieces that we like. We don't go through and get all of it, do we? I mean, that's just the, the beauty of a salad bar is you, you, get, you, pay for all, you pay for the whole thing, but you take what you like. The Bible isn't that way. Jesus said, take all of me or none of me. And if, the, and, and if you know somebody or if you are someone who has a tendency to seed pick the word of God, you're going to end up being deceived into believing things that are not biblical. And you're also going to be a deceiver because you're going to teach the things you believe. And so he says here, uh, they will be unwilling to submit to authority. They'll be idle talkers and they will be deceivers. And I put there for you, that means all talk, no walk. And we all know someone who's like that, but don't think about them this morning. Think about yourself. Am I a deceiver? Am I an idle talker? And I, am I someone who's willing to submit to the authority of, and the lordship of Jesus? Am I all talk? Am I no walk? So what are they like? That's what they're like. Number two, who are they? Well, many times we think of false teachers, we think of people that are outside the church. They're just proclaiming their garbage and they're teaching it as if it's healthy food. Um, but I would submit to you, number one, their secular culture. Secular culture is a false teacher to the Christian. Secular culture is a false teacher to everyone. But Cretans are known for, verse 12, being liars, gluttons, and evil beasts. Um, but here's the deal. Whether we realize it or not, we are subjected to their teaching day in and day out. It was told me recently that the average uh, American is submitted to 1,500 advertisements a day. Most of these advertisements are not from believers. So tell me that you, I don't listen to anybody unless they're a Christian. I, I don't believe that any of us have that uh, luxury because we're inundated with it. Get on your phone, advertisements. You open, turn on TV, advertisements. You read a book, you're being taught ideologies. You know, so you, you're not, everyone's prone to it. So we just have to be sober and vigilant. We need to be watching. We need to be aware of what we're taking in. We have to be aware of what we're teaching our children by what we're allowing. We just have to be vigilant. But um, the, the other false teachers are not so obvious. They are the religious, found in verse 16. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him. And these would be uh, Pharisees. These would be people that are religious. And many times they come as wolves in sheep's clothing. Many times they come in and they're on TV. They're, they're preaching. And, and it all sounds so good and Man, it kind of appeals to the flesh, and it gives us what we want. It tickles our ears. I want to love God, and I want to be rich. You know, I want to love God, and I want to be able to do whatever it is that's not actually okay with God. But they'll tell you that it is. Um, we need to reject that teaching as well. But what I want to submit to you is that from these that would seek to give us false teaching, as the church, our best defense is actually offense. You don't, want the, you don't want the devil to score against you, you better start putting up baskets. And, and in all reality, uh, what Paul, or excuse me, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. 
1 Peter 2.15 says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. He says, this is the will of God. If you want to put to silence those who are speaking false things and teaching false things, he says, do good. <laughs> this is the will of God. By doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Those that proclaim to be religious, those who are false teachers, um, their lives will be proven by the fruit that comes from their lives. But for us as Christians, if we will simply trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, right? Uh, believe what Jesus says, obey the simplest things that Jesus says, and guess what? Our lives will be proclaiming the truth by the way that we live, and the way that we speak, and the way that we interact with other people. So he says, you will put to silence. You know, many of us want the liars to be quiet, frankly, right? But how many of us are actively trying to put them to silence by the way that we live? That's our best defense. Know the truth and be set free. So in John chapter 8, verse 32, he says, if you will know the truth, you will be set free. How do we oppose the false teaching? Know the truth teaching. Know the truth. Know Jesus. And not just relationally, but also get to know what he said in his word so that when somebody says, well, it says in the Bible this or that, you can go, no, it actually doesn't. It says something close to that. So let's go back and correct what you believe. And what I'm finding is that as I read the Bible, and here I am 12 years in, I'm finding out that there's still many things that I believe that aren't actually in Scripture. They're really close. But I still kind of have a little bit of an ear for twisted scripture. You know, that Christian rock band, you know, twisted scripture. Um, I stole that from somebody else. I'm not actually the author of all the cheesiest pastor jokes, believe it or not. So Titus is being written to by Paul. And Paul says, I want you to set in place the things that the Cretan churches lack. So establish the church. How do we do this? Preach God's word. Establish leaders in the church that talks about not just putting leaders in place, but also investing in those leaders so they can be good leaders, not just leaders. And number three, silence false teachers. So what I love about this is as I was thinking about this passage, I was actually thinking about gardening. I like to garden as a hobby. I'm not great at it. Um, I have a lot of go in the beginning of the season, and usually it kind of gets a little crazy, and then the weeds overtake. But what I want to point out is that establishing the church of God is really the same as gardening, except it's God's garden. Uh, not like the billboard that's at the church on the way to Farmington, where it says something about turnip for church and uh, squash gossip, and there's like a third one on there. It's, kinda, it's something I would come up with. It's real cheesy. Um, but instead, uh, establishing the church is much like a garden. So preaching God's word is really sowing good seed. Not just sowing seed, but sowing good seed. Uh, we also have to prepare the soil. We also have to do other things, right? But we have to sow good seed. If you don't put seed in the garden, garden stuff don't grow and you don't have no vegetables. Number two, establish leaders. As your plants begin to grow, 
You have to put a structure for them to grow on. And if you look at my house right now, if you guys drive by, you'll see a, a menagerie of stuff I've put up that are my like redneck trellises that I've hung off the, I've hung them off the garden, and I put there's bungee cords. There's no duct tape, but it's coming. Um, but essentially, a trellis is something that you put up so that your plants who cannot sustain themselves can grow on them until they can sustain themselves. As Christians, we're not always called to lean upon leaders. But when we need leaders, when we need people that are further along than we are, start leaning on us. We're here so you can lean on us. Not because we're perfect, but because we know what it's like to need to lean. I lean on people weekly. My pastor, if I call him, he answers. He doesn't do that for just everybody. Their church is too big for that. But he knows that if I call, it's because I need him. I need wisdom. I need prayer. I need encouragement. So if you are a believer, you need that too. Who do you lean on? Hopefully it's one of us. Hopefully you feel comfortable enough to call us and say, hey, I messed up or I need counsel or I need, just, just pray for me in this area of my life. I don't want to get into it. That's fine. That's what we're here for. We are here so that you, as you grow in your faith, can be established and eventually be someone who could be a trellis for someone else. But number three, um, we can't, it's not just about sowing good seed and it's not just about establishing leaders. Uh, there's going to be times where we're going to have to do a little bit of weeding. Remove the weeds. Uh, silence false teachers means sometimes I'm going to hear somebody say something in church and I'm going to call you about it during the week and go, you know that's false, right? Don't take it personal. It's because I care about you. I, I tell my kids that they're wrong sometimes because they're wrong and the thing that they believe is going to hurt them. And if I don't, I'm not a good dad. And if I don't confront you about something you say that's false, it's because I'm not a good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. He called Peter Satan. I don't know about you, but if, I, if, I, if somebody came up to me and said, you're Satan, I'd be like, I don't like you. But Peter, you'll notice that later on, he actually, he still loves Jesus. He was able to receive correction. Is that you? I believe things that are not true, and sometimes people have to confront me. So it's just like establishing a garden. And, and I want to encourage you, as we're getting ready to go into a new school season, many of you are parents. Uh, whether your kids are out of the house or not, you're still parents. Uh, whether your kids are in the house and they're going into middle school, or whether your kids are hours away, whatever. Um, be a good parent. Uh, sow the word of God into your kids' lives somewhere or another. Maybe you're not like the one to sit down and have a Bible study. But try it. You know, but at the same time, uh, put structure in their lives. Be a trellis for your kids. But don't just respond and react and get aggravated at the person that wronged them or whatever, but take God's word and use it to teach them through the hardship. They're going to experience it. And number three, if they believe something that's not true, or if they have people in their life that are teaching them things that are wrong, cut them out. Pull out the weed. Be done with it. I don't care if your kids hate you or not. You're not there to be their friends. You're there to love them enough to correct them so that down the road, whether they thank you or not, their lives will be better for it. And so number three, 
Uh, this is the element we have a hard time with. We understand teaching, we understand uh, leaning, we understand uh, removing weeds, but maybe sometimes we don't reflect on the faith portion of this. Because I don't care who you are, if you grow a garden, uh, you don't know what makes a seed turn into a plant. I marvel at it every time. But trust in the grace of God to give the increase. If you'll do these three things, the grace of God will make up for the rest because you're going to do it imperfectly. So, Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for Paul's word to Titus. We thank you for the establishment of the church there in Crete and how you used Paul to encourage Titus in some simple foundational truths. And yet they were truths that I think we need to hear over and over again, that your word is so important and it's potential to, to grow good things into our life is unsearchable. It's, it's amazing what your word can do if we will simply know it, learn it, apply it and believe it and continue in it. And at the same time, Lord, we need you to establish uh, our Pauls, establish leaders in our lives. I pray that you would send and you'd raise up leaders in this church for the future because uh, Steve and I and Jesse and I and even Jason and I, we're all going to die one day. And this church isn't about us establishing us. It's about establishing the pillar and the ground for the faith in this community. So I pray for the future of our little body here, that as we grow, that you would raise up those who you qualify to be leaders in your church. Give us wisdom as we lay hands and as we pray over people that would be leaders in our church, to pick leaders that would be foundational, that would be trellises, so that young plants and older plants would be able to be established in the faith that is in Jesus. And at the same time, Lord, I pray for you to root out the weeds. Root out the weeds in us as individuals so that we won't be carrying around with us not only poison, not only weeds that will rob us of growth, but also weeds that will ultimately rob us of fruit to the glory of your name. Lord, remove the weeds so that we can be fruitful vines that are attached to the vine dresser, Jesus. And at the same time, Lord, we trust that it's your grace that has brought us safe this far and it will be the, your grace that leads us home. So, Father, we pray for your grace for you to produce fruit in us as we abide in you. And, Father, I thank you for the beginning of this school year and I pray your blessing upon all those that, that are going to be sending kids to school, helping with homework, and those that will be teaching and spending their most fruitful hours of the day pouring into the future of uh, these lives, Lord, that ultimately make up our community and ultimately make up our state and our nation. And ultimately, some of them could be sent to other nations to proclaim the truth. So, Father, I pray for your blessing upon those. Thank you, Lord, for being with us, and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.